Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Lisa Samet is a well-known health practitioner who has appeared on the Dr. Oz Show to promote homeopathy and naturopathic healing. She has an international-based practice in Montreal specializing in homeopathy, emotional wellness, nutrition, and lifestyle optimization. Lisa is the author of Emotional Repatterning. Emotional Repatterning provides insights, stories, and real-life examples to deepen your understanding of your own mind, the patterns of thinking, and deep-seated beliefs that keep you feeling stuck and unhappy. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much, Dr. Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. A while back, I had asked for your support through Patreon, and I'm so grateful for those who reached out and supported me, but I do need a bit more help. So I've been doing my podcast for about two and a half years now. I have probably upwards of 100 guests that I still want to get in touch with or people who've gotten in touch with me to be on the podcast. And so I'm asking for a little bit more of your help. If you could please go to patreon.com backslash Dr. Amy Robbins. There's uh, my page there, which describes the different levels of contribution. You can contribute at $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, $1 a month, 50 cents a month. It does not matter to me. 50 cents. Just every little bit helps me to continue to produce the amazing content that I am so committed to bringing you all every single week. And so if you could please just go take a look at that and contribute where you feel comfortable, I would very, very much appreciate that. And you're going to hear another podcast that's going to go into more depth later this month in my Q&A podcast about uh, why I'm asking for this. And there's also a Q&A connected to that. So don't just ignore that podcast. Anyway, also would love for you to subscribe to my newsletter at dramyrobbins.com. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so every podcast that you get, you see. Thank you all so much for your continued support of the podcast. And now here's today's episode. Thank you. So can you tell us first how your work, how you work as a naturopath and where you see feelings and emotions fitting into the work you do? Wow, that's a great question. So, you know, one thing that's super appealing about naturopathy and homeopathy in particular, which is my, my specialty under the umbrella of naturopathy, uh, is that we approach the patient as a whole being. So, uh, we're always looking to understand the patient in terms of physical, mental, and emotional health. And that's basically in our interview, in our initial interview, which is very thorough, we're really understanding how the patient functions on all those levels and their level of wellness on all those levels. And uh, I think that's very important because a holistic approach is great, but we all have realized the link between mind and body. So, you know, we can't separate out the stress that I feel, the trauma that I went through a year ago, uh, whatever's happening in my life that's disturbing my, my peace and my calmness and my physical health. Those things are all related and they're all interconnected. 
and you know, working in this field for over 20 years, I've really developed an appreciation for the fact that often physical illness is preceded by emotional stress. And so it's very difficult to approach a patient without taking all of that into account. So it's one of the things that makes my job fun because you know I'm not just talking about someone's knee or somebody's you know belly or somebody's headache. I'm talking about the whole person. And I think people really enjoy being addressed that way because people know, well, yeah, I started getting migraines after, you know, my kid got sick or I, you know, started, uh, I got cancer after my husband left me or, you know, people themselves know that. I think the conventional system often has not really paid much attention to that because there's not a whole lot they can do about that. So do you find that there are certain correlations between events and illnesses, specific illnesses, or is it? how your body reacts and responds in each person is different. So uh, yeah, I would say each person is different. And then, you know, what is the, the basis there? Probably genetics at that point. You know, there has been a whole lot of information lately and I totally agree with it myself. We are not our genes, you know, it's not like because my mother had this and my father had that, I'm, I'm doomed, not at all. But we do have certain genetic faults and stress will bring that fault to the surface or will activate the gene where the problems are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's hard to say like, okay, if I have this kind of stress, I'm going to have a heart attack or, you know, as opposed to that kind of stress, I'm going to have an autoimmune disease. It doesn't happen so much like that, but we could say as a general rule, stress is going to bring down my immune function. And then the genetic weaknesses I have are going to come to the front. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, I, I think it's such, I think you're talking about epigenetics here. And that's yeah. such a powerful way to take control of your life, right? Because it puts us in a place of we are no longer a victim or, or we don't have control over our experiences or what happens to us. Exactly. So then it all becomes about how do I keep myself as well as possible on the emotional level, right? And of course, that's what you spend your days Uh, consulting with people about and increasingly me too, because, you know, life is hard. (laughs) We just, this is a fact, you know, it's not just been true of my life. Pretty much everybody I know has been challenged on one level or another. Uh, So we, we don't really have the tools to deal with those things effectively, mostly because we're not taught anything about emotions, right? I mean, I never took a class in that. Nobody ever told me that. My parents, who were relatively smart people, didn't know themselves uh, right. how to manage their emotions. I took a lot of emotions. classes in that, but that, <laughs> that's because Still of hard. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And just because I know this work and I wrote the book and I, you know, work with patients on this level doesn't mean I've mastered it either. But I think that we should all have the goal of emotional wellness, because certainly if we manage ourselves better emotionally, I think we do forestall a lot of physical disease that could be coming. Well, and I want to start with a really moving part that you talked about, which is your son. Yes. So can you tell us about that? Because I think, you know, as I was reading that, I really identified with it because I think that some of what you know, many of us do is in an attempt to control outcomes, right? We have, we've set up a belief system that if we do all the right things, then bad things won't happen to us. Right. And then when we realize that isn't what happened, it's really more of a shock. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my, I have three kids and my husband and I are both naturopathic doctors. We have a clinic together and we raised our kids with, you know, what we thought was the best, you know, organic, 
like everything. And, you know, they didn't have uh, pharmaceutical medications. We treated them with homeopathy and naturopathy. And, wow, we thought we were doing, you know, the best. And I think we did our best. But when my youngest son was 10, uh, he was like lacking energy and wasn't well. And I just brought him for a blood test. And, well, and over the next couple of days, things unraveled and he was diagnosed with leukemia which was, you know, mind blowing in and of itself. But what was also really hard was that they were proposing a two year program of treatment for that, which involved what turned out to be over 150 uh, chemo treatments. I mean, we're talking bags of chemo, IV, not a shot, not a pill, um, over a two year period. And, you know, with that, they had about a 90% cure rate which was very hard to turn down. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we ended up going with it, which, you know, maybe we would have tried to do other things, but 90% was a huge number. And so we found ourselves in the situation, not only having the shock of having one of our kids who had been raised so well, we thought, uh, you know, sick with cancer, uh, but then being faced with being in the medical system, which we don't love and having chemo <laughs> for two years. And let me tell you, it was hell. Uh, but the good news is he lived, he's now 16 and a half Mm. and, uh, you know, in fabulous shape. So talk about a paradigm shift, but yeah, I mean, you know, these kinds of things that we can't plan for, we can't control, we can't anticipate and we can't predict have a way of, you know, blowing the doors open on everything. And that's certainly what happened to me. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Just speaking for myself, it was, it was an experience. It was a mind blowing experience, but as everybody knows who has gone through difficulty, as much as you'd never want that, choose that or wish that, often we emerge from that with some gifts or some better perspectives or some opening. And I would say that that certainly has happened for me. So I'm grateful for that part of it, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was not fun. Well, <laughs> I'm say. so glad to hear he's doing amazing that. And, yeah. and probably, you know, you could say that you set him up for that even if, he had to go through that, that the, that a lot of the groundwork for like a healthy body and immune system was probably laid and something yes. went awry, but you know, that probably aided in his survival. Yeah. I like to think so. So yeah, maybe <laughs> in the moment it was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this can't I'm... be happening to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that no matter how much we prepare and think we you know, I would handle that how, or that it can't happen to you at any moment it can. Right. And that's, that's the reality of, of life. Exactly. That's the humbling piece because, you know, no one's entitled to any better deck of cards or hand dealt than anybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can do all the right things and it's no guarantee of anything. So yeah, just, you know, you're, we're on a raft in the middle of an ocean and, you know, we have to just learn how to paddle really well. <laughs> so that's where I think emotions come in. So can you talk about the eight spheres that you describe and how did you narrow it down to eight? Yeah, good question. So uh, what you're referring to is what I call in my book, eight thinking traps. And I have dedicated a chapter uh, to each of the thinking traps in my book And those thinking traps are illustrated by my clinical experience. So I basically tell the story anonymously of various patients and that illustrates the points I'm trying to make, which I think, you know, the feedback I've gotten is that that has made the the book very 
uh, approachable and readable because everybody can see themselves in another person's right. story. Everybody right? so, loves what, what do your patients talk to you about? What do yeah, they say? Exactly. Right? It's kind of a kind of voyeurism, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> but I think, you know, when you read a story of someone else, you say, Hey, that's me, or that could have been me, or that's my sister or you, well, you know, I totally get that person. Right. So I think it helps make the points uh, understandable and, and relatable. Um, and, and how these eight thinking traps came about, and I'll, I'll go through them in a moment with you, is that, you know, with working with people on an emotional level more and more over the past years, I came to realize that, you know, we're, we're all suffering from really similar things. I mean, you know, the details may be different. Your problems don't look necessarily like my problems. But when we boil it down, I saw patterns like, well, you know, it really comes down to certain maybe ways of thinking or misperceptions uh, or distortions that we tend to see reality with that cause us to have this suffering. And I started kind of thinking about, wow, maybe I have something to say here. I'll write a book about it kind of half jokingly. It was never on my to-do list, but I I felt after a while that, you know, I actually feel like I have something to, to say here. I feel like I have something to offer here because why hasn't anyone talk to me about this. Why haven't we ever heard about these kind of common misperceptions or ways of dealing with life that cause us all to suffer so much? And it it would have been great if it's somewhere along my training or my upbringing, I would have been exposed to those things. I think it would have saved me a lot of headache and a lot of heartache along the way. So that was pretty much the, the motivation for writing the book, just feeling like, wow, I mean, people don't know this stuff and maybe they could learn something in advance on some of these things and save themselves from suffering. So the, uh, the eight thinking <laughs> traps, I'll just, I'll just list them off. And mm-hmm. if you have you know, one or two of them that you're particularly interested in, we'll go through it. So it's, it's self-love, it's acceptance. In other words, not arguing with reality, which mm-hmm. we all do very well. Mm-hmm responsibility, which is basically taking my share of responsibility in every dynamic where things are not going right, because then I'm more empowered. Uh, Stories, which is really the stories that we make up about the facts that happened. And, you know, questioning whether that's the only story that can be told about those facts. Co-creation, which is an understanding that, you know, we are not in this alone, you know, that there's a higher something, whatever you want to call it, you know, people get offended by certain names and words, you can call it whatever you want. The universe maybe is the most neutral, but, you know, we are in co-creation in terms of our lives. uh, And that, that perspective, I think helps a lot. Um, Another thinking trap is gifts. You know, I have come to learn that when we're challenged in life, it's actually a gift. It's an opportunity to grow and learn and evolve, which my feeling is that's why we're here to begin with. Mm-hmm. So if we were to see all these hardships as gifts and opportunities, wow, wouldn't that be a paradigm shift? Um, regret, I think, is also something that tortures people. You know, they all think they should have done something else and it would have turned out better. So I try to debunk that. And finally, the concept of death. Uh, which, you know, you, <laughs> I wonder you know which one about. I'm going to pick to talk yeah, more exactly. about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, so, I mean, there's a lot of people who are very anxious and when you, you boil it down, you know, when you really probe that, you know, I think that anxiety is the result of a problem. It's not necessarily a problem, right? So right. what's underneath the, th- the thing that's causing the anxiety and 
I have often found it's just a lack of feeling safe and, and death is interwoven in that, right? Because death is a mystery, even though ironically, it's happening to every single one of us. It's the only guaranteed thing we could ever say. We will all die. And yet nobody wants to talk about that subject as if it's bad luck and we're gonna, you know, make it happen where otherwise it wouldn't have happened, which right. is such a joke. Right, like we can you know, push it away or yeah. stave it off by not accepting, by, yes, accepting not right, the it. reality, right. Which, right. which just makes it this big, scary thing, because if you don't talk about it, then it's, it becomes very taboo. So, of course, people are afraid of it because it's, it's not normalized in our culture, which is not true of every culture. Right. But in our culture, it's not normalized, which is bizarre. No, I mean, in a lot of cultures, death is very celebrated and it's there's a lot of ceremony around it and a lot of belief systems around it that are talked about that a physical body dies, but the spiritual body doesn't. That goes yes. on. And we despite a lot of research that I've talked about in this show, still yes. believe that many people, probably not a lot of people who are listening, but many people right. still believe that when it's, when it's over, it's over, and that that belief system is just a way to make yourself feel better. Right. And, you know, earlier in my life, I totally saw it that way. I rejected religion. I was an atheist. I thought that all those beliefs were just a crutch. And then slowly I kind of evolved from that, you know, ground zero, let's say, into something that I'm absolutely sure about. I would say it's beyond a belief. I mean, it, it, to me, it's like, feels like a knowledge. You know, I just, I, I simply have a knowledge of that. I, I don't necessarily know all the details of how it works. I have my mm -hmm. own theories of how it works, but uh, there's a great knowing in my mind of, that uh, death is not the end and that it's, you know, so much better on the other side. And, you know, I really do feel that Earth is a school. And I present this idea in the book, you know, that we leave home, we come to Earth for a very long semester, which is about, let's call it 80 years. And we are presented with various things that we don't know, right? Because that's why we're here. We're not perfect and we don't know everything. So our challenges are uniquely suited to our personal learning. Mm -hmm. And free will uh, allows us to take a pass each and every time. And we do know people who take a pass on their learning opportunities. But the universe is relentless and we will yep. continue to be gifted. And I always say, if you're not going to get it this time, you're going to get it. This, you know, it's going to come to you. So if it's not in this life, you'll no get rush. it next time. And it might be uh, louder and stronger and not as kind. A hundred percent. And we all know people, even in this life, who have been repeatedly, you know, knock, 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 hello, <laughs> answer mm -hmm. the door, mm -hmm. you know, who have repeatedly been hit over the head with a two by four you know, with the universe trying to get them to wake up maybe more spiritually or more emotionally and, and the door is just closed. And, you know, free will, that's everybody's choice. Um, but we will always be presented while here on earth with opportunities to evolve. I feel that's the point of being here. And then we go home after it ends and we, you know, we review the lessons and we we move on to whatever's next. But I mean, that, that framework for me, I mean, I, I, of course it does provide a bit of comfort, but it just provides better for me a framework with which to live my life. And, mm -hmm. and that's maybe why I appreciate it. So what exactly is emotional repatter 
re- I have such a hard time. It's, it's a tricky word. Patterning. Exactly. And, and how do you see it differ from other work? Because as I was reading the book and you were describing it, it sounds not dissimilar to the kind of work I do in therapy. Ah, it could be. So, you know, the first large part of the book is de- is dedicated to these thinking traps which is ways that we get stuck in seeing things on a conscious level. So, you know, conscious, my thinking mind, my aware mind, and all the distortions there. But then the second part of the book is really kind of the payoff, if you will, which is where the emotional repatterning techniques are offered. And that is more working with the subconscious mind. And I think that that might be the unique aspect of the book. I'm not exactly sure what you do in your practice, but you can tell me afterwards if it's at all similar to what I'm proposing. So, you know, I lay out this understanding that the conscious mind and the subconscious mind are really two different things. And, you know, we have this conscious mind, we decide, you know, we're going to lose weight, we're going to start to exercise, we're going to eat better, we're going to not snap at our kids, you know, whatever we decided, we set goals, we have affirmations, we have all these things. And, you know, how often do we fail? Often, right? And then, you know, Mm -hmm. why is that? Because we're very determined. And it's because they've done a lot of research on the brain in the last 20 years and the neuroplasticity and the ability of the brain to learn. And what they've understood is that the conscious mind has about 5% awareness of all the brain activity. And that leaves the rest to the subconscious mind, which is underneath the conscious mind. So it's it's what we're not aware of, Mm -hmm. right? That represents 95%. So if we're working really hard with our 5% conscious mind and we do a bang up job and get a gold star and we have our foot on the gas, all systems go. But in the subconscious mind, we have other beliefs, negative beliefs about ourselves or about the world or negative patterns of thinking, often from childhood. That can represent something that's like a foot on the brake. So we have a foot on the gas and a foot on the brake. And then we say, well, why aren't we going anywhere? You know, we we have all these, you know, we were so determined to, to do things differently. So the second part of the book really talks about how do we get into the subconscious mind identify and shift some of these negative beliefs, negative patterns, so that we support our goals and our desires on the conscious level. Mm -hmm. And I think really that's what the unique offering is because um, the people that I've worked with, and now they're, they're, they're numerous, Uh, When we get down into the subconscious mind, we realize that a lot of people don't love themselves. For example, I mean, there's a lot of garbage in there, but let's just take that as, as a really important and basic one, right? Because if I don't love myself, how well is it going to go for me out there? Maybe not very well, right? Because Mm -hmm. if I don't love myself, it's going to be very hard for me to accept love. And at the same time, I'm going to have to do a lot of different behaviors to try to get that suffering and that empty place filled inside of me from the outside. So I'm going to have to, you know, have no boundaries and be overly generous and try to please everyone all the time in the desperate attempt to get some recognition, some love and some appreciation to make myself feel better. But you know this pattern, I'm sure, as well as I do working with people, you know, it's not the answer to anything because that just leads to a lot of bitterness and resentment when we don't get back what we think we should. And in any case, even if we did, we can't accept it anyway, because how can I accept your love if I don't love myself? Right, right. And so what happens is there's a lot of unconscious undoing of what you want. Exactly. Right? There, That's well said. So it's very much, you know, in the subconscious 
if those negative beliefs are not weeded out and changed, it's going to be very hard to accomplish everything we want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people often ask me, well, how did that, you know, lack of love get in there? Why don't I, why do I have these negative beliefs? And, you know, I feel like that's more of a therapy setting to kind of explore. My mother did this, my father did that, my teacher, my siblings, my friends, whatever. Yes. And there's a gold mine there, but I'm really focused more on changing the belief and not so much worrying about the who, what, when, where, and how. Right. Although that's very interesting, it doesn't always lead to change. It leads to maybe a better understanding of, of, of why. Right. So really, right. this book at the end is about techniques where we can relearn certain things. So for example, if I am a person who doesn't love myself on the subconscious level, uh, there's a, a technique that's described in the book, emotional repatterning of how to now teach myself to love myself. It's a technique, straight and simple, so simple that you actually say it's almost ridiculous. Is it that easy? You know, patients say to me, well, I probably didn't believe that for 50 years. How are we going to change that in five minutes? And I always say, you know, it's a belief. It's not a fact. Beliefs can change in a moment, mm-hmm. right? If I look at the weather report and I see that tomorrow is supposed to be sunny and I go to sleep believing it's going to be sunny and I wake up and I open my curtains and there's a storm. I mean, how long does it take me to change the belief? Like one minute, one second, right? right? Beliefs can be changed. They're not facts. So, so what is I, the technique that you would use for something like that? Well, it's a technique that actually comes from um, a technique called brain gym. Have you ever heard of brain gym? Mm-mm. Okay, so you'd probably be interested in doing some research on that because it's super interesting. It was developed um, at least 10, maybe 20 years ago uh, by a man who was doing a lot of work with kids who had trouble learning. So they had maybe autism spectrum or um, difficulty with learning. And he worked in that setting and he developed a technique that he called brain gym, which is actually a way to engage both hemispheres of the brain. So both the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And in his research, he found that when you engage both hemispheres of the brain, you are putting the brain in more of an active learning mode. So the brain is able to more deeply learn concepts and ideas. And he used this with kids who had trouble and he found that it worked amazingly well. And there have been a lot of, I studied that in 2013 because I actually had a large population in my practice that was autistic or on the spectrum or Mm, difficulty mm -hmm. learning. And so that's initially how I got started with this. And then since then I've taken many, many training courses and a variety of interesting things to work with people on the emotional level. So what I have presented in the book is more of an amalgamation of all of that, but it's rooted in this idea that if we can get the both the right and left half halves of the brain uh, aware and operating at the same time, we can teach ourselves very simply a new belief and that new belief replaces an old belief. So for example, if I would use the technique on myself, I would do that and I would repeat over and over again as I'm in this position physically that engages both sides of my brain. I love myself. I love myself. I love myself. I would teach myself a new belief. And then at the end, I would try to uh, test myself. And I have a way of doing that in the book to see if, in fact, I've replaced the old belief with a new belief. And when you do that with a multitude of beliefs, I have infinite worth and value. I am safe. 
I am connected. I, I live my life with firm boundaries. I am compassionate with myself. Um, I trust myself, you know, depending on what the issues are that we're working with, with people, we try to identify which beliefs underneath that are not supporting them in how they want to live and we change them. And, you know, it's a bit more elaborate what I do in my office, but I right. have boiled it down to something that's really doable at home, which is, which is great because I think that there's a way to, to really change things on a deep level. So it's different than a mantra in that it's really targeted to what the underlying unconscious or you're saying subconscious uh, belief about yourself is. So it's not just, you know, picking a mantra out of thin air and saying, you know, I am, I am lovable. If, right. You know, if your belief is I am not worthy. Right. A hundred percent. So it is like a mantra in that we're going to develop a positive belief that we want to say that replaces the negative belief. So that part is similar. But when we say it, we put ourselves in a physical position that activates both sides of the brain. When both sides of the brain are activated, then we're going deeper than just the conscious mind, you know, because patients of mine have said, oh, I've done affirmations. You know, I look in the mirror every morning and I tell myself you're beautiful, you know, and I say it 20 times. Yes, that's great. Mm -hmm. But we're working with the conscious mind there, right? We're not in any way doing deep learning. We're not in any way activating both sides of the brain so that we can penetrate the conscious mind and go deeper into the emotional world that lives in the subconscious mind, right? Which is a repository of a lot of things that we learned in childhood uh, about ourselves, which were probably grossly inaccurate, right? I mean, if I was five and my father lost his temper one day and started screaming at me, I doubt at five, I had the wherewithal to say, gee, that man needs help. You know, he should go work on his anger, right? Probably I thought, gee, I'm not very good, you know? I mean, because these these adults look like gods when we're really young. Well, and it's also how we internalize things, right? Like what was sad versus how we made sense of it. Exactly. Too, I think is a big, a big part of it because we often assume that like the the person who gave us that message was bad or that they, you know, that they were angry or mean or whatever it was, ill-intentioned or, but sometimes it's also at that, at a young age, we're, we're learning how to make sense of the world. And so how we might make sense of that might have nothing to do with what that person thinks of us, but it's how we've determined what, how we've equated meaning to that. A hundred percent. And so, you know, when people say, oh, well, how did these beliefs get in there? Or why don't I believe better things about myself? It's because, yes, there's a lot of misinterpretation going on when we're young because we just in terms of our own brain development, we don't have the context to really get it. So we often think it's about us. You know, mm -hmm. we don't realize that person's having a bad day or they're fighting because they have a bad marriage and it has nothing to do with me. As adults, we can look back and see all that stuff. But the negative beliefs have already been long ago kind of inserted in there. So for me, this work is almost like a software upgrade. You know, it's like it's an old version that that uh, that story we're repeating in there. So why don't we just bring it up to the 2021 version and, you know, really deeply believe all the things that are true about me. Right. I am a good person. I do have great worth and value. I, of course, love myself. Why wouldn't I? You know, mm -hmm. all of these things. And I find that as we replace and kind of upgrade those negative beliefs in the subconscious, all of a sudden, the need to do that conscious work and all the affirmations and all those things really diminishes because when we change it at the 95% level, so to speak, 
you know, it's kind of like the prescription in my glasses gets better. You know, I no longer see the world in such a distorted way. So it's just all easier because I see it better and I see it more clearly coming from a better place inside myself, right? A more healed place, a place where I know who I am. And from that place, I can show up so much better on the outside. Well, and so, I think it's into, then it's integrated into yes. you in a different way. Yes, I, that's well said. So, you know, for me, what the book offers is it's, you know, understanding these thinking traps on the conscious level, but then really learning how to go underneath to a deeper place and change some negative beliefs that support that wrong thinking, if you will. And then we have like all systems go, right? Mm -hmm. Then we have it all lined up and then we can really kind of show up and, and show up so much better. And then we alleviate a lot of the suffering that we all have, right? Mm -hmm. Because as we started this conversation, life is full of challenges. And the challenge for us is to how to navigate that better, right? We're not gonna get rid of those challenges. We can navigate them better though. Yes, absolutely. So how long does it typically take someone to emotionally, re I keep challenging myself with saying the word emotionally <laughs> repattern. You got it. Great. Perfect. <laughs> Luckily, it's probably easier to do than, than, than to say. So <laughs> that's a good thing. I mean, honestly, it takes about a minute or two for each of the new beliefs we want to instill, right? So, I mean, depending on how many beliefs you want to tackle, right? We would go through each one of them, you know, usually, honestly, in my office, between two and three sessions of an hour each, we've pretty much done, you know, an enormous amount of work. And uh, patients come back and they say, I, I can't even believe it. You know, like my kids came home from school and they screamed and they did all this, they were running around, I usually would have gone nuts. And I was like, okay, they're kids, you know, didn't react. You know, my husband came home and said X, Y, and Z. Normally, I would have been hurt. Normally, I would have done this. And they realized that they just thought, oh, you know, you probably had a bad day. Like they don't recognize themselves in a certain way because they no longer are carrying all those wounds on such a deep level. So they're not as triggered by what's happening in the external world. You know, we, we always think, oh, it's about him. He said, she makes me feel, they did. You know, we're always about how everybody else isn't doing it right. And that's not my philosophy at all. I'm like, own as much of it as you can, because then right. you have power to change right. it. Right, <laughs> right. Where and, and people don't like to hear what, where is your responsibility in this? What is right. the role that you play in perpetuating these? Exactly. You know, but you know, what I do is I, I, I try to sell that by saying, if it's everybody else's fault, you're a victim and you can do nothing. Because as we've all learned, we can change nobody. And, you know, we've... We've all tried and we've all come up empty handed. We can't change anyone, right? And we can barely change anything. So when we see it that way, who wants to be a victim of all of that stuff? Not me. So if I grab as much of the responsibility as possible in any dynamic, well, it's not in the spirit of self-blame or self-criticism or I did wrong and I need to be ashamed. It's not in the spirit of that. It's to say, if I can take a lot of responsibility for what's happening, well, I can change a lot of what's happening then, right? Because when it's under my domain, well, then I get to upgrade myself and show up better. And then all the dominoes fall in the better ways when I'm out in the world. So that's the payoff for taking the responsibility. It's empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good trade-off. I, I agree. So Lisa, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to buy your book, which is just recently out, right? In yes. April. 
beginning of April. Yes. Yeah, where, yeah, it's just shipped last week. Where I'll show you a picture they, of it. I don't even know if you've uh, if you had the hard copy. I it. didn't have the hard copy. I oh had the, the PDF. The we PDF have to send that version. To you. <laughs> I love my books, though. I love a hard copy of a book because I'm a I'm my daughter's like, why do you annotate everything? Yes, and I'm just exactly. like a big underliner and yes, stars. Yes, me too. Well, I'll notes. make sure we get you the hard copy because it, it just started shipping, so maybe you'll enjoy it more. I personally like holding a book in my hands and you know flipping through and reading it. So me too. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, emotionalrepatterning.ca. So that's my website for the book. There's a lot of testimonials on there. There's little excerpts on there. Uh, but I think that, you know, people have found it to be a, a fast and easy read and very relatable. And again, at the end, there is some exercises to do which are fast and easy and that will, will bring about really deep change. So I think that, you know, I hope that if your listeners uh, decide to buy it, they'll be rewarded. Well, and I, I always like when I go to, to read a book like three days before I interview the person, which is usually how I'm rolling. I look at how many pages it is and I'm like, okay, phew, I can get through that in three yes, days. Exactly. Yeah. There's like 140 pages. It's not a big novel. You know, it's definitely straightforward and I hope you found it that way too. Easy yes. And- it was very readable. It felt in a lot of ways, like, I mean, I felt like I was talking to myself in some ways, like what yes. you were sharing was like, oh, she's just put this nicely in a package. Yes, so, exactly. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I You're really welcome. enjoyed chatting with you and learning about how you think about emotional health being such an important part of our overall well-being. So yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.